Daniel 2, 20 to 22. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. The prophet Daniel is an example that God is unquestionably sovereign. 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16 says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The Apostle Paul is an example that God is patiently sovereign. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Today's sermon is dealing with the Apostle Paul's command to Timothy, the pastor of the church at Ephesus. This command can be found in the next chapter in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. But before we dive into today's text, let's consider Paul's words from chapter 1, what we just read from the screen. In this text, Paul calls himself the foremost sinner, or in NIV, it's, he calls himself the worst sinner. And in King James, he is the chief of sinners. Saul of Tarsus zealously persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. He traveled from town to town with orders from the high priest to round up, to imprison, and even execute believers in Jesus. Just look at his role in the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7 if you want more information about that. Now let me ask you this this morning. If you were a member of the first century church, would you, could you possibly imagine Saul of Tarsus walking through those doors but sitting down in one of the pews? Could you imagine Saul of Tarsus being converted to the very religion that he hated so much, that he spent every waking moment seeking to destroy? Would you welcome him? Could you imagine that? At times, I admit, sadly, I could not imagine that, and that is the problem. Admit it, some people seem beyond saving, right? You think, they'll never listen. They just ridicule and they mock. They're too in love with this present world. They are too in love with the things that they have. They are so entrenched in their sin that they could never repent and believe the gospel. In your mind, you think they are clearly not one of the elect. Clearly. It's obvious. Have you ever felt that way about someone? I mean, in your heart. I mean, you wouldn't say it out loud. But in your heart, deep in your heart, have you ever felt that way about someone in your life? Sadly, I have. And this wicked attitude, and it is wicked, stems from a faulty view of my own sinfulness. Not just before I was saved, but right now, this very day. It's as unbiblical, it's an unbiblical understanding of my own unworthiness. The terrible habit of comparing myself to other sinners. Trying to justify myself before God and in my own eyes. Doesn't take too long. If you look around you long enough and you avoid looking in the spiritual mirror, 
doesn't take long to find a worse sinner than you are. Look around right now. You might find one sitting right next to you. But seriously, how many of us would actually admit that about ourselves? But you know it's true. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus addresses the subject of the supposed relative sinfulness of men. And he says this in verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish likewise perish. So we repent. We have repented. We've repented of the attempt to save ourselves. We've repented of the worship of dead idols and turned toward the worship of the one true and living God. Yahweh is his name. And we daily repent of known sins. We pray for the grace of God to walk on with Jesus, to focus on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen? And we tell others about Jesus. And some listen to us, and some do not. Most do not. Some are somewhat respectful in their denial and unbelief, but some are not. Most are not. So what do we do? Not sh what should we do? What do we do? Do we strike back like the Empire strikes back in Star Wars? Do we imagine ourselves like Darth Vader, but in reality, we know we're more like Jar Jar Binks? <laughs> Thank you. And God bless you if you don't understand the prequel reference. You're not missing anything. But seriously, we stammer and we stutter. We strike out in anger. We cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And we disobey the command of Scripture to pray for them. Brothers and sisters, I know it can be frustrating. I know at times you want to pull your hair out or pull their hair out. You're sure you've made the perfect argument for the truth of God's word, for the holiness of God, for the sinfulness of man, for the necessity of the gospel, the only way to be reconciled with God through Jesus. And they mock. And if they're able to make your life more difficult, yes, especially if they're in a position of authority over you, they do make your life more difficult. Perhaps they're your parents. If you're an, a believing child living with unbelieving parents, they can make your life pretty difficult. How about your professor or your teacher? What about your employer, your boss, your manager, or maybe the company that you work for? Or how about your mayor, your governor, your representative, your senator, or even your president. What do you do? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus, desperate for the appropriate words and the accurate biblical teaching and handling of the subject of praying for all people. I pray first that you would give the people ears to hear and hearts to obey, that you give me the words to speak. I pray that if there's anything that I say that is not in line with your word, that you would either prevent me from saying it or that you would prevent the people from hearing it. 
I pray for your Holy Spirit to anoint this service. And I pray for, your, for our Father to be pleased. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and follow along silently as I read aloud 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. First Timothy 2, verses 1 to 6. Verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Brothers and sisters, there's a ton of theology Christology, soteriology, and anthropology in these six verses. Way too many ologies to cover in a single Sunday or in a brief two-hour sermon. Got you. But I will walk through the text, and I'll try my best by God's grace to explain and apply all verses while maintaining the focus on Paul's command to pray for all people, especially those in authority over us. Verse 1. First of all, then... I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, Paul's use of the word then calls back to what he said in chapter 1, what I read during the introduction. It's like the word therefore or the phrase in light of or due to the fact that. So due to the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, to save sinners of which Paul was the worst, at least according to himself, and I think any believer who accurately views him or herself would say the same thing about themselves. But Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which Paul was the worst. Therefore, first of all, in light of that, Paul urges Timothy and the Ephesian church to pray. To pray, to pray for all people. Why? Because Jesus came into the world to save all sinners. Yes, later in verse 4, he says God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And that will be examined in a little while. But notice here how Paul qualifies the term all people. In verse 2, he says, for kings and those in high positions or for those in authority. Now, why do you think that the apostle Paul would give such examples after saying all people? It's because Paul can look in the mirror and see such a man, one who at one time carried the authority of the Jewish high priest in order to arrest any followers of Jesus. He knew what it was to be on the other side of the spectrum. So he knew the natural inclinations also of the heart of any person that it would be to not pray for those in authority who are persecuting us. It's not natural to pray for somebody that's attacking you. Yes, it might be normal to pray for rulers who are kind and fair, but certainly not for kings and emperors who made life difficult for Christians. And certainly not for those who stormed into church gatherings, hauled off pastors to jail, separating husbands and wives, fathers and children, and shepherds and flocks. 
and definitely not for those who would enact policies that restrict and punish the free exercise of religion. In other words, they say, may God bless my friends, but may he curse my enemies. No. No, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Yes, God desires to save all people as in all Jews and Gentiles, men as well as women, old and young, teacher and farmer, doctor and janitor, rich and poor, Republican and Democrat, capitalist and socialist. Therefore, Timothy, Ephesian Church and Redeeming Grace Fellowship, you pray for all people, for all types of people, even those who persecute you, even those who in your flesh you despise, especially those people. This is hard, I know. But the truth is, no one deserves prayer. Right? You don't. I don't. Everyone desperately needs prayer, but no one deserves prayer. Just as nobody deserves God's mercy. Everyone desperately needs God's mercy, but no one deserves God's mercy. I don't, and you don't. So here is what we deserve. Judgment. Condemnation. Death. Hell. So keeping that in mind, keeping in focus that the gospel is for everyone, for all types of people, Paul says we need to pray for everyone, including our enemies, including those who are using their authority to abuse us, in order to persecute us, in order to silence us, such as kings, rulers, mayors, governors, representatives, senators, and presidents. The Apostle Paul writes that these men or women are to be included, and I would argue not only included, but to have major emphases put on them when we do pray. Therefore, in light of that, let's look at three aspects of praying for those in authority. Three aspects of praying for those in authority. We're going to look at the how to pray, the what to pray, and the why we pray. So first, the how to pray. Back to verse 1. First of all, then I urge that supplications be made for all people. So first, Paul refers to supplications. Supplications are prayers or prayer in general that is sparked by a specific need, a dire need. The dire need in this case is the fact that rulers are persecuting the church. So, we need to pray for those very rulers who are giving the church a hard time. It's as if this first term, supplication, gives a sense of urgency to the different types of prayer that is going to follow, like blessings, intercessions, thanksgivings. So a supplication sparked by a desperate need is an entreaty. It's a begging of the Lord to act on our behalf. Perhaps it's a posture of prayer, kneeling, raising hands, falling prostrate before the Lord on our face. It's a seeking of God's face, focused and desperate for his ear. Yes, it's strong imagery. It's one of desperation. It's a turning to the only one who could possibly deliver what the church so desperately needs. And it's with that steadfast focus and resolve on how to pray in mind that we now move on to the next phase, the what to pray. And this is going to be the bulk. 
of what we say today. The what to pray. So the what to pray will contain three specific focuses. The first being prayer, the second being intercessions, and the third being thanksgivings. So the first being prayer. Prayer or specific prayers asking God's blessings on the kings and all who are in high places if they are doing or planning to do is righteous and godly, if it is true, if it's in line with God's will and his word, and if it pleases God. If, in other words, ask yourself, is this policy going to protect the people of the land from wickedness and evil, or is the policy promoting wickedness and evil? This is where it's really important to know God's word and to know what he loves and what he hates. Gideon before quoted from um, 1 Corinthians 6, and a little before that in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lists a whole litany of things that are abominations to the Lord. So it's good to know from his word what is pleasing to him and what he hates. I'll be more specific as this topic will overlap with the why we pray in a little bit. But now suffice it to say, brothers and sisters, that the church needs to pray that our governmental leaders will be blessed by God as they govern righteously and hindered by God if they govern wickedly. We know that God is able to accomplish this. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Sovereign. We now continue in the what to pray section with our second focus, intercessions. Intercessory prayer is constant prayer. The first thing that should come into any Christian's mind is our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how he prays or intercedes for his elect people day and night before his father's throne. He stands in between sinners and the holy God. And this is exactly how we are supposed to go to the Lord on behalf of those in authority. First, number one, praying for their salvation. Praying that they would repent and believe the gospel. Praying that they would be given new hearts, hearts of flesh, hearts to believe the gospel, hearts to repent of their sin and turn to Jesus in saving faith. They don't deserve salvation, but neither did you. So we will pray for their salvation. And we will see in the verses to come that this will please God. Secondly, we can also pray or intercede for the church. We pray that the Lord will protect the church from these uh, rulers if they are attacking her. The Lord did promise to never leave or forsake us, and his church is his bride, and he cares for us. So prayer Intercessory prayer for the church is definitely something we need to do on a daily basis. So in review, the first two focuses of what to pray consisted of prayers and intercessions. Again, prayers for enabling grace for their good governing, and we pray that they will be blessed, or restraining grace that God would hinder them from bad governing and wicked governing. And then number two, intercessions. We pray that our leaders would be saved. And if they are attacking the church, we pray for protection from them. And this leads to the third focus of what to pray, thanksgivings. Thanksgivings. Prayer, thanking God for his past, his present, 
and his future blessings. In general, Christians always pray with thanksgiving. Paul writes in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thankfulness should be the constant demeanor of a redeemed sinner. But specifically in this case, in this text, thanksgiving is for, one, any good that the Lord brings about through the men and women we're praying for. For example, if the Senate passes a bill that protects the lives of the unborn, we thank God for that. Or, if members of the House of Representatives write legislation that promotes the welfare of people, we thank God for that. Conversely, when the Lord prevents the Supreme Court from handing down a wicked ruling on a case they decide to take, or even prevents them from taking the case in the first place, we thank God for that. And of course, when the Lord protects the church from a wicked law or an evil policy or an unrighteous Supreme Court ruling, we thank God for that. Christians, first of all, are to be a thankful people. And we are called to thank him for the blessings he bestows on us, even if they come to us through wicked leaders. Brothers and sisters, this far we have seen the how to pray, supplications, desperate entreaties to the Lord. We have seen the what to pray, prayers, asking God's blessing on our leaders, uh, enabling them to lead righteously or restraining them um, from leading wickedly. We've uh, been called to intercede for them, praying that our leaders would be saved, and also praying that the church would be protected from wicked leadership. And then we just looked at thanksgivings, thanking God for righteous leadership and also for the prevention of wicked leadership. And now we're going to look at the why we pray, or the desired outcome of these prayers. Back to 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So, number three, the why we pray. The why we pray for all people, specifically kings and those in authority, can also be broken up into three reasons. Number one, we pray so that the church can lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Number two, the why we pray is because it pleases God, period. It pleases God. And number three, we pray because God desires to save all people and for them to come to the knowledge of the truth. So reason one, we pray so that we, the church of Jesus Christ, can lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Remember, we are already praying for those in high positions to properly govern and maintain justice. We were already praying for that. Romans 13 describes their role as a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's Paul's opinion of government. In other words, when there are godly leaders in the local government, in the police, in the state government, in the federal government, the only people who should fear are those who behave wickedly, 
right? Truly wickedly according to God's standards. And what Paul is saying in Romans 13 is that as long as we, the church, behave righteously, we will receive the government's approval. Now imagine that. You know, sadly, this is often not the case. And this is currently not the case. So the church fears, right? We fear. Even when we're living righteously and we're standing up for God's truth, we fear. What will this new administration bring? This is the why we pray for them to lead well and for them to maintain peace. Why? So that we can live, we can work, we can worship and evangelize in peace and quiet without the fear of religious persecution. Now, the Bible tells us not to be surprised when it comes. The Lord promised persecution would come. And church history demonstrates that it did come and is currently here. Current events indicates that it is coming again and fast. So what does God tell us to do? He commands us to pray about it. Unless you think again, why bother to pray? This nation, our nation, is too far, too far gone. Consider the Lord's instructions to the Jewish exiles in Babylon in Jeremiah 29, 4-7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and multiply there, and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. You know where they are. You know what the government is like in Babylon. And the Lord says, pray for its welfare. Brothers and sisters, don't let the news scare you. Pray for the welfare of this country. For in its welfare, we will find ours. Now, we know that our true citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. But we do have a mission here, and we do have to live here. Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. And as we pray, church, we are to maintain, this is important, a godly and dignified life. This is our responsibility, whether the Lord grants us peace and quiet or not. We are to live a godly, holy life in word, in what we say, and how we say it. Our attitude is very important to God in what we say and what we do, in word and deed, in what we do and how we treat other people, how we treat our neighbors as well as we treat our brothers. And let's be godly and dignified or honest and live with integrity. We must be people of truth. Our reputation needs to back up our yeses and our noes. And again, I say this to myself, our attitude matters to God. Do we speak the truth in love? Or do we seek to win arguments or make our opponents look bad? I need to check my heart very often and ask myself, why am I saying what I'm saying? What do I hope to accomplish by this conversation? Am I seeking to glorify my Lord by loving my neighbor? Or am I just trying to make myself look good? Christians, check your hearts. And so, 
the why, the desired outcome number one, number one, is for our government leaders to maintain a culture in which the church can peacefully and quietly thrive and wherein our godly and dignified lifestyles would be commended and not persecuted by the state. Now again, before you think that's impossible, that'll never happen, I will answer, no. In and of themselves, it won't ever happen. It is impossible. But all things are possible with God. And I think that finally is an accurate interpretation of Matthew 19.26 because he's talking about the rich man and how hard is it for them to be saved. It's easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle. And then they say, well, who may be saved? Then Jesus says, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. And this is what he's talking about. 18th century English theologian John Gill puts it this way. That since the hearts of kings are in the hands of the Lord and he can turn them as he pleases, prayer should be made to him for them that he would either convert them and bring them to the knowledge of the truth that they now persecuted or at least to dispose their hearts and minds so they stop the persecution and so saints might lead peaceably under them, enjoy their religious liberty and be encouraged in their moral conversation. This is reason number one. Again, so that the church can live a quiet and peaceful life and that she may be godlified, uh, dignified and godly in every way. Now we move on to the why reason number two. Why pray for government leaders? Because it pleases God, period. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, going to him, leaning on him, trusting him seeking his attention and basking in his presence, acknowledging that apart from him, we can accomplish nothing. This is what he desires from us, and this is what he deserves from us. Now, I know we cannot begin to repay him for everything he's done for us, for the common grace, for his saving grace, for the joy of family, for the joy of fellowship, for every common blessing, for his salvific love. It pleases God when we pray to him. It just does. And now for reason number three of the why we pray for our government leaders. First Timothy 2, 3 to 4, Paul writes, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why pray for government leaders? Because God, our Savior, desires to save all people. Again, what does Paul mean by all people? Does he really mean every single person that's ever lived? Well, if that's the case, then God will be eternally frustrated because not every single person that's ever lived will be saved. There will be people in hell. Did Paul really want Timothy to open the Ephesian telephone book? Remember those things, telephone books? To open the Ephesian phone book and start in the alphas and pray all the way to the omegas? No, he's not saying that. If God desired that every single person without exception would be saved, then guess what? every single person, person without exception would be saved. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. John 6.37, the Lord Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Question, does every single person without exception come to Jesus? The answer is no. Question, is every single person without exception given to Jesus by the Father? The answer is no. 
God does not desire to save every single person that has ever lived. He has prepared the reprobate for destruction, Romans 9.22. God chose to elect a people, elect a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And this decision was made before the foundation of the world, before anyone had done anything good or bad, as was the case with Jacob and Esau. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And this decision was made by the sole pleasure of God's will. It also says in Romans 9 that God mercies whom he mercies and he hardens whom he hardens. This is God's sovereign choice and it is not based on anything in us, not foreseen faith, not for anything good or bad that we would do. That's what it says about Jacob and Esau. Why was it done? It was so that God's purpose in election might stand and that he would receive all of the glory. You see, it was for these elect people that he sent his son Jesus to live and die and rise again for. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid their ransom. And the elect is made up of all people, not Jews only, but also Gentiles. Not only peaceable unbelievers, but violent ones too, like Paul himself. Paul was a violent unbeliever. He violently converted, he was violently converted by God on the road to Damascus. What was he doing? He was on his way to persecute more Christians. But God had other plans for Paul. And you know the rest of Paul's story. The Apostle Paul is an example that God is patiently sovereign. So all people, elect people from every nationality, elect people both young and old, elect people from both genders, elect people from every position in life. And as previously stated, Paul himself narrows the scope by giving the examples of kings and rulers, presidents, vice presidents, governors, senators, representatives, and mayors, all people, even those that persecute you. Pray that they would come to the knowledge of the truth the truth of the gospel, verse 5, for there is one God, not thousands, not millions, not none. There is one God, the one God who created everything that exists. For there is one God who created man, and since man fell, there is need for reconciliation. Someone to bring the two parties together, someone to stand in the gap, someone to mediate between God and man. Job cries out in Job 9.33, if only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. Verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. One mediator, not many, one. Jesus Christ the righteous. Not Jesus' mother Mary, not the 12 apostles, not the Roman Catholic saints, one mediator, the God-man, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Lord, Jesus the Lamb of God, who, verse 6, gave himself as a ransom for all, the same all as delineated before, all types of people, not every single person, because listen, if he paid the ransom for every single person, then every single person's guilt would have been taken away. Jesus, the God-man, God-man, the second person of the Trinity, fully divine, born in the likeness of human flesh, fully human. He stands in between the holy God and sinful mankind, and he's able to speak for, and he's able to identify with both. Although he was tempted in every way as we are, he remained sinless. 
And as the perfect man, he could bridge the gap that no one ever could. He took his father's wrath for us, for his elect people, and he fully paid the price that our sins earned and that we really deserved. Jesus ransomed us. Jesus redeemed us. Jesus sacrificed his perfect, sinless human life for us. He is our Savior, and as the only unblemished and acceptable sacrifice, he serves also as our mediator, as our intercessor with the Father on our behalf. Hebrews 7, 24 to 25 says, Jesus holds this priesthood permanently. Why? Because he is able to save to the uttermost or completely those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. His death paid for our sins, redeemed us, bought us with his life. And now in him, we can boldly approach the throne of grace and call God the Father, our Father, Abba Father. The Father of Christ-believing Jews, the Father of Christ-believing Gentiles, both groups brought together into one flock, one people, all people, all believing Christians. This is, as verse 6 continues in 1 Timothy 2, the testimony given at the proper time. As God saw fit to promise and foreshadow in the Old Testament and to actualize it in the fullness of time and record it and explain to us in the New Testament, this is the testimony. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Believer in Christ, rejoice that you've been saved. Rejoice that you've been ransomed. Be thankful that you've been redeemed. Your sins have been washed away. Jesus took them upon himself, took them and paid the price. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again, and now he lives to intercede for his people. If you're not a believer in Christ, what are you waiting for? The wrath of God hangs over your head this very minute. Trust in Christ to save you. You are unable to save yourself. You can agree with everything I said about praying for governmental leaders and we hope that they, lead, uh, they, they let it leave us alone and let us live our lives. But there's a deeper problem, the state of your soul. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are unable to save ourselves. Our best acts, our righteousnesses, are nothing but filthy rags before a holy God. So what do we have to give him but our sin? But Jesus came to save sinners. Know that you are the foremost. Run to him, trust in him, repent of your sins and turn to him and he will save you. We said before that the Lord says, of all the Father gives to me, uh, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. He then says, and of all that come to me, I will never cast them out. He is a perfect savior. Run to him now. So in closing, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, the chief of sinners, an unlikely convert, redeemed by the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, this Paul urged Timothy 
And now the Holy Spirit through God's word urges us today to pray for all people, particularly for those in high positions, like President Biden, like Vice President Harris, like Governor Cuomo, like Senator Schumer, like Massapequa Mayor Teresa Wassner Spinoza. I admit I had to look that one up. The Holy Spirit commands us to pray for them. And if any one of those names made you cringe or tighten your fist, then you haven't been listening to a word I've said all morning. This doesn't come naturally to us. That's why Paul urged Timothy to pray for emperors like, oh, Nero. And that's why I urge you this morning. Pray that the Lord would radically save these people. Pray that they would govern rightly and justly. Pray that the Lord would bless their efforts as they line up with God's will. Pray that the Lord would restrain their efforts if they violate his re revealed will so that the church in New York and all over the country would be able to lead a peaceful and quiet life, free to preach the gospel and free to live according to the word of God, living godly lives, being dignified in every way, knowing, knowing that this pleases God and it's in line with and is a means that he uses to accomplish his desire to save all people because he is the one true God who gave us the one true mediator, Jesus Christ. The one mediator between his glorious self and wretched, sinful humankind. And this mediator, Jesus Christ, gave himself as a ransom, redeeming God's elect people, paying for our sins, granting us new birth, giving us the great commission to spread this gospel to the ends of the earth. Amen? So, as my one point of application, I say simply pray. Pray daily for our na nation's leaders. Pray for President Biden. Pray for his salvation. Pray for his agenda. Ask God to bless his righteous plans. Ask God to prevent his wicked plans. Pray for Congress. Pray for our governor. Pray for our local leaders. Pray that God would be merciful to our nation by granting it repentance and faith in Christ. And by the church being free to spread the gospel, that we might continue to be a means by which God saves sinners. Now, let me be absolutely clear. Let me be clear. I'm not suggesting that we just pray for blessings upon these people, that God would just make them prosperous and successful and have everything go their way. I'm telling you to pray that God's will be done in them and through them and that they would function as they were meant to function, as God's instrument to bless righteousness and punish wickedness. We pray that God would hinder them from accomplishing any evil plans and that his hand would move them to act as he wishes. Also, praying for leaders does not mean that we cannot publicly disagree with them. We need not be silent. We must not be silent. If we are to live a godly life, dignified in every way, we need to be honest and truthful. And calling evil evil and wickedness wicked is important. But brothers and sisters, we need to do it in humility and with all grace, not in a mocking way, not in an arrogant way. I'm well aware that this is not easy. John Calvin obviously was aware of this too when he commented on 1 Timothy chapter 2. John Calvin writes this. He, Paul, expressly mentions kings and other magistrates because more than all others, they might be hated by Christians. This isn't new. That's why Paul urged Timothy to pray for them. But Christians are praying people. 
And God answers prayer, and God uses prayer as a means to accomplish his will. And he always accomplishes his will. God is unquestionably sovereign over all the affairs of men. Ephesians 1.11 says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Isaiah 46.10 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. You see, brothers and sisters, God places all rulers in power, even wicked ones. Remember what the Lord Jesus said to Pontius Pilate at his trial in John 19.11. Jesus said, you would have no authority over me if it hadn't been given to you from above. And here's how my hero Martin Luther puts it in his commentary on Romans 13. He says, even if evil persons, rulers, do not desire to serve God, he directs all things in such a way that the good which they possess and which they misuse, their ordained governmental power, must serve him. For this reason, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, though a wicked idolater, is divinely called my servant by the prophets, that is, by God through his prophets. Remember that? Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. All things serve God. Even Satan must perform God's bidding. Just read Job chapters 1 and 2. Or read in Paul's life in 2 Corinthians 12, where a messenger of Satan is sent to Paul to buffet him. Why? In order to keep him humble. Now, I'm not sure if Satan wants to keep Christians from sinning, but God sure does. So, believers in Christ, be at peace in Christ. He is our peace. He is our Sabbath. He gives us rest. Trust and obey. Believe in him and pray. Don't be tossed back and forth like waves, waves on the sea. Have the confident hope that our Lord is in control of all events, past, present, and future. And realize that although at times things may seem dark and scary and hopeless, he is still on his throne. And he calls us, his church, to faith and to repentance, to belief and to peace. Peace I leave with you, Jesus says. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Did you know that the Lord Jesus said these words to men who would be arrested eventually by a wicked government? They would be tried and convicted, and in most cases, according to church history, they were put to death for their faith? That's who he said these words to. And the Apostle Paul himself was beheaded in a Roman prison shortly after writing another letter to Timothy. And it's the same apostle that encourages Christians with these words, the same words I leave you with this morning. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this was a tough text this morning. We admit it runs counter to the way that we feel, the way we think. Lord, at times we have righteous anger, verified righteous anger toward what's going on in our country. But we pray. We ask your grace to follow your command to pray for all people, including and especially kings and rulers and those in authority over us. Lord, I pray 
for our president. I pray that you would please save him. I pray that you would move him to lead the nation righteously, that you would bless his good policies, but you would prevent his evil ones. I pray for our government in general, that you would move them and you would restrain them and you would perform your perfect will through them. I pray for our nation as a whole, that you would grant us repentance and that you would turn the nation to the Lord Jesus Christ and save your elect from it. And I pray for RGF. I pray that we would pray daily for each other, for our church, and for our nation. And I pray in all things that you would be glorified. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.